mentioned, we'll be studying Ephesians 4, and today we'll be looking at the first six verses. Let's read those together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of, worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. After the sermon, we will sing hymn 50, verses 2 and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our scripture reading, we heard that profound prayer of our Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. Very aware of the betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and death just hours away, he prayed for the unity of the church. We hear him pray in verse 11 that they may be one, even as he and the Father are one. It is a profound prayer, both considering his circumstances as he was thinking of others despite his looming death, as well as the content, that the church might experience a unity like he experienced with the Father. Our text this morning is also about the unity of the church. At this point, though, Paul is not offering a prayer for the unity of the church. Rather, he writes about the calling of his readers to work for the unity of the church. That this is the overall thrust is clear from verse 3, where he writes about being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He may have written about this calling to the Ephesians, but it is truly a calling for the believers throughout the ages. What Christ our Savior prayed for, we have a calling to work for. Now you may have noticed the use of the word calling. I did not say we are called. The word called can too easily be seen as one assignment along with other tasks. By speaking of calling, we are following the word used in verse 1, where Paul urged his readers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling to which they had been called. The calling to work for the unity of the church is an integral part of the essence of the church. We might even say it is part of our spiritual DNA. This is so because the church is one, and therefore her calling is to be one. It is like the Lord saying, You are holy, now be holy. In our text, Paul lays out two reasons why we should give ourselves with renewed energy to this calling. I proclaim to you this morning, we have a calling to work for the unity of the church, and we'll consider two things. First, the spiritual qualities to obey this calling, and second, the foundation for this calling. We begin with the spiritual qualities to obey this calling. As we do this, we will hear echoes of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. There are also echoes of Paul's instructions in Colossians 3, verse 12 and following, where he spells out the virtues of the new nature we are called to put on as those redeemed by Christ. In our text, he does not simply give a list of spiritual qualities, but he groups them. 
There is first the instruction to go about this calling with all humility and gentleness. Humility. How hard it is to be humble. Yet how much damage is done to the unity of the church by a lack of humility, by wanting to be first, by wanting to be right. We don't know what the situation was in the church at Ephesus since Paul does not address specific situations. His emphasis on the church being made up of Jews and Gentiles may have been in response to a lack of humility which hindered accepting each other on equal terms, but it is not stated specifically. We get a clearer picture of what was going on in the church at Philippi, a letter in which Paul also stresses humility. Near the end of chapter 1, he calls his readers to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He calls them to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This, ex ex this exhortation reflects conflict. In chapter 4, we read of conflict between two sisters, Eodia and Syntyche. From chapter 2, we can gather that these tensions were caused by a lack of humility. We read in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This brings out how selfish ambition and conceit, in thinking you know it better, stands in contrast to humility. What is striking in Philippians 2 is the example Paul gives of humility. It is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though in the form of God, in humility, laid aside his heavenly glory and took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself even unto death. Our Lord Jesus spoke of this himself, too, when the disciples were discussing who would have the most important spot in the kingdom. He said that they should be ready to serve one another. They should follow his example, as he had not come to serve, not come to be served, but to serve, giving his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, verse 45. Our Savior is the ultimate example of humility, even though he is most important. Paul links humility with gentleness. At other times, this word is translated as meekness. We hear an echo of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. Meek does not mean weak. Rather, meekness shows a deep self-awareness of unworthiness. It is a good companion word for humility. If we are gentle, if we are meek, we will be aware of our personal standing before God. If we take a serious look at our, sinful, at our natural sinful condition, which continues to show itself daily, it should be enough to hold us back from thinking too highly of ourselves. You may recall that Paul calls for gentleness when seeking to restore someone caught in a transgression, a sin. It is to be done in a spirit of gentleness, with the warning, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. As we work our way through our text, it is important to be reminded that we need to be listening with a view to ourselves. When we hear, about, when we hear words about humility and gentleness, there is always the danger that we end up thinking about brothers and sisters who certainly need to hear this. We might even throw a quick glance to see if a certain brother or sister is present to hear it. We must fight this. Rather than looking around, we need to look at ourselves. The Spirit is holding up a mirror in front of each of us. Are humility and gentleness words that describe us? 
Do we consider others more important than ourselves, putting their interests before our own? We should realize that humility and gentleness are, not, are shown not just in actions, but also in our words, in our faces. We hear of people wearing their emotions on their sleeves. What do others see when they look in our eyes? What do they hear when they listen to our voice? No, don't look at others right now, brothers and sisters. Let each of us look in the mirror of God's word. What do we see when we look in our eyes? Listen to our own voice. Evaluate our own actions. Let us keep our eyes on ourselves as we consider the next grouping of spiritual qualities. With patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It starts with patience. An older term is long-suffering. It is a term used to describe God bearing with his people over centuries of sinning. In the case of our text, Paul is calling for patience with each, with each other despite the many ways we sin against one another. That's where the bearing with one another in love comes in. We think also of Peter's words when he calls his readers to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That's 1 Peter 4 verse 8. We can also think of the parable about forgiveness as found in Matthew 18 where the servant who had been forgiven much by his master was unwilling to forgive a fellow servant who owed him only a small debt. As we noted, this second grouping also includes being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Impatience will quickly break unity as people can madly rush off in all directions when there is a disagreement. It should be noted that this is not a call to maintain unity just for the sake of unity. It, it is not a case of unity at the cost of truth. By speaking of the unity of the Spirit, we are speaking about the unity of faith, unity where we are bound together in the peace we have with God in Jesus Christ. The sad reality is that there have been so many divisions in the history of the church that really had nothing to do with the truth of the gospel, but was all about impatient people who could not bear with one another in love. There have been too many divisions where it was about people wanting their own way about something that had nothing to do with the essence of the gospel, where there was impatience in dealing with one another. This is all too clear when we look at the efforts being made to seek unity with brothers and sisters in other churches. Splitting is easy. Reuniting is hard. The spiritual quality of patience is very important. Now I remind you again, brothers and sisters, that as we listen, we should not look, be looking around at those we think need to hear this, but we should be listening as if looking in a mirror. Do our deeds, our voices, our eyes communicate patience? Do we radiate love in our interaction? Are we ready to overlook a lot of flaws in the lives of each other because we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Keep in mind that we are not talking about putting up with falsehood, we're talking about being patient with each other's weaknesses and shortcomings, just like our God is with us. We are talking about being patient with others as we hope they will be patient with us. That is indeed our calling as church, to work for the unity of the church by applying these spiritual qualities as underlined by Paul in the next three verses, where he stresses that the church is a unity. 
That takes us to our second point, the foundation of this calling. As we turn our attention to the foundation, the thought might arise that this should have been the first point. We are, of course, simply following the sequence of our text. When we think back to what Paul wrote in the first three chapters, we see, however, that he laid the foundations already. That's why he could start off with a therefore. In the second half of our text, we see that Paul has seven statements about the unity of the church, which basically are a recap of what he had been teaching about the church in the first three chapters. Let's take a walk through these seven statements. First, the church is said to be one body. At the end of chapter 1, Paul referred to the church as the body of Christ, with Christ being the head of the body. In chapter 2 and 3, he elaborated on the church as being made up of Jews and Gentiles. Together, they make one body. The Gentiles now belong to the commonwealth of Israel, being fellow citizens, members of the same household. There are not two churches, one of Jews and one of Gentiles. There are not many churches divided by race. There is one church, one body, united by grace. Since he mentions one spirit, second, he mentions one spirit. He mentioned the spirit in chapter 1, when he said his readers were sealed with the promised spirit. That was in verse 14. At the end of chapter 2, he described the church as a holy temple in the Lord, the believers being built together in a dwelling place for God by the spirit. In his second prayer for the Ephesians, he mentioned in his prayer that God might grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. It's chapter 3, verse 15. There is one spirit working in all believers. This third one seems to interrupt the flow a little, but it is still something that shows the church is one, as all believers were called to the one hope. We wrote of that hope, he wrote of that hope, when he wrote of the eternal inheritance of which the Spirit was a guarantee. There's chapter 1, verse 15. Fourth, he mentions one Lord, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you of the Christological aspect in chapter 1. God does all things through Christ. Christ is the head of the church. Christ rules over all things. In Christ, all believers are one body. As we read in John 10, there is one shepherd and one flock. The fifth statement is one faith. We can think of the content of faith, that is, what we believe, the Holy Gospel. The apostles preached the same gospel of the same Christ, calling all hearers to faith in Christ's sacrifice. We can also think of one faith in terms of Jews and Gentiles being saved by one faith. In order to be saved, there are not special things to be done, to be believed or done by each different race or nationality. No, only through faith in this Christ are sinners reconciled to God. Sixth, there is one baptism. Paul has not written about this in this letter. We can think, though, of the experience of the Ephesians described in Acts 19, where they were baptized. We can also think back to the commandment given by our Lord before his ascension to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are not different baptisms for different nationalities or genders or social standing. 
the same baptism is to be given for all. Finally, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Believers all belong to this one God. He is God and Father of all believers. He lives in the midst of his people who are his temple. You see, brothers and sisters, how Paul lays out what all believers have in common, what shows their unity. This unity is a given. Believers must make every effort to maintain this unity, to show this unity. This unity is out of character, out of keeping with our calling. To be sure, there will come schisms due to heresy. Truth and falsehood, God and Satan, cannot be together. The fact is, though, that believers have this unity. It is because we have this unity that we must strive for unity. This unity that we have is therefore the foundation of our calling. So if someone says, why should we spend energy seeking unity with other believers in other churches? Can't we just let each do their own thing? That's the easy way out. Then we are denying the spiritual DNA of the church. Christ prayed for unity. He died for that unity, and we are to work for that unity. That also carries through to living together as local congregation. There will be many tensions which can turn into squabbles. The easiest thing would be to run, to divide, to do your own thing. That's the way of the deceiver, the divider. The gospel unites. We think again of these seven points of unity. Christ prayed for that unity. He died for that unity. And we are to work for that unity. And so we conclude with an exhortation and a prayer. As for the exhortation... Let us hold up God's word as a mirror and see if we are walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. As for the prayer, let's pray.